Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Happy July 4th. July 4th, of course, commemorates the day in 1827 that New York City uh, abolished slavery. July 4th also commemorates, of course, the date in 1884 that the Statue of Liberty was presented to the United States in Paris. Right. July 4th is also the date that the second, third and fifth presidents all died. And of course, it's also perhaps the most accidentally important day in American history. And I wouldn't want to celebrate the 4th without speaking to the great Kenneth C. Davis, the New York Times bestselling author of the America's Hidden History and Don't Know Much About History books. He's also the author of uh, the best book about slavery I've read since Roots, The Shadow of Liberty. Check out his book, Strongman, uh, which will tell you all about how dictators rise and fall. You've seen Kenneth C. Davis all over TV and radio uh, and a TED-Ed educator. We are always thrilled to welcome Mr. Davis back to our show. Happy 4th of July, Kenneth. Hey, John. Always a great pleasure to be with you. And uh, happy Independence Day to you and uh, everyone else as well. It is the day we are actually told to go pursue happiness. So uh, (laughs) I'm all for it. Yeah. um, Every day of pride, too. But some people don't like that much liberty. I I, (laughs) want to begin by, by talking about the Declaration itself, because I think... As Americans, it's inherent that we take our liberties for granted. And I think it's easy to forget that the Declaration of Independence, as we know it, contains many radically new and profound ideas. And I want to ask why 250-odd years later, almost 250 years later, why should we still view this document as a radical work? It's a really good and important question, John. And I love, I've been talking about uh, July 4th for a very long time professionally, more than 30 years. Uh, as a nation, we still don't know much about history, unfortunately. Uh, we've seen all sorts of stories lately about children in particular uh, failing history, basic history classes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very worrisome to me that that situation still exists in this country. Uh, I've been doing my best for 30 years. Uh, obviously, I have to work at it a little bit more. Um, but more dangerous to me than the idea of people being innocently ignorant of history because they got taught a bad version or they found it incredibly boring, which many people do, or they kind of you know learned it and then forgot it all. More dangerous than that to me is the deliberate distortion 
of history, especially when it comes to the, the history of the founding of the country that we're seeing right now in this yeah. country uh, with politicians who are absolutely burying the truth of this country's past. And the Declaration of Independence and Independence Day is a perfect time in my mind to talk about what those uh, what these ideas were in 1776, uh, mm -hmm. who these men were, and the great contradiction that they embodied, that a nation conceived in liberty, as Lincoln said, was also born in shackles. When Jefferson drafts the Declaration of Independence, uh, I'll back up for a second here. Congress uh, had been debating this question of whether we should you know, go this extra step? Should we go over the line and really uh, venture forth into this territory and challenge the most powerful nation on earth, the uh, uh, the English, uh, the Great Britain? And um, there were a lot of conservatives who didn't want to go there. Um, and so mm -hmm. there was a, a serious debate going on in this country. Of course, the war had already begun in April 7, uh, 1775, at the battles of Lexington and Concord. George Washington had already been dispatched up to the Boston area as the head of this Continental Army, which was a kind of ragtag uh, collection of, of militiamen and, and riffraff, right. very few of them very well trained. And he had to uh, That's true. shape them into an army. So the situation was very much in flux in July of 1776, but on July 2nd, Congress then votes on a, a resolution of independence, saying that America is uh, is independent. Uh, John Adams and uh, one of the founders that I like to think about and talk about went home the uh, that night, actually the next morning, and he writes a letter to his wife, Abigail, and he says, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable in the history of America. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows and games and sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other. Um, so he had a very perfect picture of what the 4th of July would be, but he thought it would be on the 2nd July because Congress voted that day. But after that vote, the Congress then spent two days debating Jefferson's declaration. And Jefferson right. was not happy about this. Like all writers, we think our <laughs> we think our words are perfect just as they come out of our uh, our lips and our word processors. Jefferson was not happy that Congress was picking over his draft of the Declaration, but eventually they do uh, uh, figure it out, and they added a lot more providences and creators and uh, and. Uh, uh, fathers uh, than Jefferson would have been happy with. As a deist, he didn't want to go that far. But that was the document as it was adopted on July fourth, seventeen seventy six. But um, but again, that's that's just the that's just the date they that's just the date they printed it. I mean, it was the date printed on the first approved Declaration of Independence, as you point out. The, Adams thought it would be the second, and the delegates didn't sign it until almost a month later, right? That's correct. Um, the, what they had on July 4th was an inky draft with a lot of scratches out and, and words inserted. So that was then sent to a printer and it was actually published the very next day as a broadside. The version we think of with the big 
uh, John Hancock scrawled in the center uh, was not prepared and not signed by most of those delegates until August of 1776. Um, 56 men, by the way, signed the document. Not all the men who voted for it uh, signed it and not all the men who signed it had voted for it. Uh, there were people moving back and forth between Congress uh, during these days. But to the main question that you asked, I don't want to lose track of that. What was so radical? What was so special? What was so important about these ideas that we do take for granted now? I think the first is obviously Jefferson saying right up front, all men are created equal. Um, this was a fairly radical idea in 1776. And of course, it is somewhat, I think we can say it's rhetoric. Uh, certainly Jefferson himself didn't believe it in by his own actions. Next, mm. he says they are entitled by nature uh, with uh, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, that was a phrase he, he borrowed from a, an important uh, Enlightenment thinker named John Locke, who would actually mm -hmm. use the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Property. Benjamin Franklin suggested they change property to uh, happiness, and I think we can be glad that they did. Um, for one reason, uh, being that happiness conveyed a, it's not you know happiness is a as a nice puppy, but the sense of the pursuit of happiness in the sense of everyone is entitled to pursue a life that was meaningful, fulfilling to them. Again, completely in contradiction to Jefferson's own actual life. Yes, um, but, <laughs> very but much. But still an important, and, and that was one of the other reasons that property was taken out, because the word property in 1776 in the United States of America referred very specifically to enslaved African-Americans. Uh, and so to avoid the bringing that into the conversation, the word happiness was substituted for property. Now that brings us to the crucial question. How do these men who are talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all men are created equal, how do these men who sign this document and clearly do take risks, they, they, they say they are pledging their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honors. That wasn't just poetry. They were really taking an enormous risk by committing treason against the most powerful man on earth. But 40 of those 56 men were either slaveholders or mm -hmm. involved in the slave trade. Uh, exactly. Very few of the signers had clean hands when it comes to the subject. No, I mean, it's it's very true. And it's something that always has to be addressed. You know, we we can't talk about July 4th without acknowledging that in many ways it was just Independence Day for white people, a day for white people who own people to celebrate freedom. But slavery was an issue in 1776. And yeah, 40 of the Declaration signers enslaved people. It makes me think of. Frederick Douglass in the narrative talking about the Christianity of Christ, the corrupt slave holding women, whipping cradle, plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. And Mr. Davis, you've always been very keen to, to include that in. We can't separate the hypocrisy of these men who owned people and wanted to be free uh, from the marble statues were sold. Absolutely. And since you raised the name of Frederick Douglass, and I, I, I did cite uh, 
cite Frederick Douglass's narrative, which is one of the great books in American history, by the way, and every yeah. person should read it, uh, wh- whether you read it in school or a piece of it in school or not. It's one of the great uh, biographical, autobiographical memoirs of this country, but more specifically to the 4th of July in 1852, uh, Frederick Douglass gave a speech in Rochester, New York. It's now uh, generally known as What to the Slave is the 4th of July. That's and, right. you know, he was invited to come and speak by this uh, uh, probably largely white probably progressive uh, audience in upstate New York, which was uh, something, uh, Rochester was Douglas's home. It was a a center of abolitionism, but Douglas was invited to speak and they expected, I'm sure, that he would talk about the glories of the Declaration of Independence. But he said to them, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You yeah. may rejoice. I must mourn. Uh, and he just excoriated this crowd in front of him with a speech that talked about the absolute contradiction of the 4th of July, celebrating liberty and independence, while millions of his fellow Black African people were enslaved in this country in 1852. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Kenneth, I'm curious, of these founders who signed this document, slave owners and non-slave owners alike, was there ever a firm consensus on what they believed was necessary for an effective government? to operate a, a, a functional political system? Were they ever achieving a full consensus on a basic system of gears for the society to run? It's a really great question. And and uh, I left out the one other piece of the genius and the radical genius of the declaration that um, is probably more important than any of the, uh, the others because Jefferson made it so specific and it addresses your question. Jefferson writes that Uh, uh, a just government can only govern with the consent of the governed. Again, we would take such an idea for granted uh, after 250 years of independence and democracy that has, you know, had its ups and downs and uh, is certainly going through its ups and downs right now. But in in 1776, when Jefferson says this, this is, again, a radical idea. Most of the nations of the world at the time were either ruled by hereditary kings 
or some other kind of ruler, certainly England, France, Spain, uh, you can go down the list, or in the case of the Vatican, the church was was the power, and the church still right. had enormous power in Europe at the time. So this idea that the the government, the, the just government, could only rule with the consent of the governed was a fairly radical idea, and it took a long time for the men who signed that document to sort that out. Remember, it's July 1776. There's a war that's fought for the next eight years, essentially. Uh, and then we are, we're working under something called the Articles of Confederation, which is that's the right. way these men thought they could run the government. It proved to be a very rickety contraption. So back they go to Philadelphia 11 years later in the summer of 1787 to write the Constitution to try and create a more perfect union. Uh, and so a lot of the debates that hung over from 1776 about what kind of government do we really want? How do we govern ourselves? Um, that was a, a problem that was not solved. And of course, even in 1787, in drafting the Constitution, it wasn't perfectly solved yet. And that's why there are uh, so far 27 amendments to that Constitution. So these men were, were struggling with the idea that they wanted self-governance, a degree of democracy. Uh, they feared democracy in a purest sense. They thought democracy was one short step away from mob rule. So they were very conservative in, in that sense. But again, we come back to the big issue that's always overhanging this. Right after the declaration is signed, when they're discussing what happens next and they're uh, going on about these things, one of the delegates from South Carolina, not surprisingly, uh, basically says, if you are going to tax uh, enslaved people, tax slaves the way you tax horses and houses, we are leaving. The first threat of secession came mm. about two months after the declaration was signed and it comes from South Carolina. Once again, this issue of slavery cannot be separated from the foundation of this country. Of course, sl slavery was introduced into the future United States of America, into the Americas in 1517 by a Catholic priest who thought that bringing Africans in was the way to solve the problem of massive numbers of indigenous people who were enslaved dying under the Spanish. So they thought, well, the Africans would probably do better here. Um, that proved not to be the case. And that's the beginning of this massive transfer of humanity from Africa to the Americas. 1619, we know that is a, a significant date. Uh, that's when the first enslaved Africans, uh, the first Africans that would later be enslaved were brought to yes. Virginia. And this begins a long process of cementing slavery into the very foundations of this country. And to argue otherwise is just a flat out lie. But there are very, very powerful politicians in this country right now who are trying to make that argument. Well, um, Ken, I don't know if you yeah, I don't know if you understand this, but talking about all this slavery really hurts my patriotism, and uh, it impacts the patriotism of children, and it might make the children of racists feel some white fragility. So uh, we're literally at a place and time, as you well know, and as we've discussed, where stating the truth 
will make someone feel threatened. Uh, somewhere, somebody along the line said, the truth shall set you free, John. I don't know where that comes from, but maybe you do. But yeah, no, I, I'm a great believer that the truth shall set us free. We can't understand America today and where we're going and what we're doing as a country without understanding how this issue of slavery was woven into the fabric of the United States. It was written into a constitution that was upheld. We eventually fought a war uh, over it and a war that killed hundreds of thousands of people. And right. so that division continued well after that war was over, as we know. Uh, the, the seeds of racism in this country were sown by slavery, and anyone who's going to deny that is denying reality. Um, and I can say, <laughs> because I saw this even on Juneteenth, this wonderful uh, new holiday that we celebrate, which is actually what I call the other Independence Day. That's um, right. A, a, a prominent politician who shall go unnamed um, said that slavery came to America to, to die in a Christian nation. Um, I should uh, <laughs> should say that this particular politician has uh, a very good uh, pedigree of education from Stanford and Yale. Um, they're not sending their best, clearly. This is such an outright lie and obscuring of the reality. Slavery was born out of Christianity and Christianity perpetuated it. Yes, abolition came out of the Christian church primarily in this country, but Christianity perpetuated slavery right. in America for centuries and to say otherwise it's an outright lie and, and just so people know the senator who said that uh his name rhymes with josh hawley rhymes with josh hawley who said that offensive piece of historical fiction but i, I want to ask you about the patriotism angle here kenneth because i mean we've we've of course are are raised in a culture where we're aware of the far right's commandeering of the concepts of freedom and liberty and patriotism. And, you know, we've discussed in the past how Fourth of July celebrations here in this country shape our landscape by forming beliefs and increasing participation, mainly in favor of the Republican Party. So my question to you is, has the political right been more successful in appropriating American patriotism in these symbols during the 20th century and maybe even more since the 2016 election, do you do you think there's any kind of actual political congruence between the patriotism we celebrate on the 4th of July and the values associated with the party that Lincoln once was a member of? That's really good and important question, John. And I would say that my my sense of it is, no, I don't think I, I think they've the Republican Party as it is currently uh, constructed um, first of all, this is a, a, a party that denies facts and reality, whether it's historical or scientific uh, or constitutional. Um, that, that's been made pretty clear down the road. Uh, they would like to drape themselves in the flag of patriotism while essentially denying all of those ideas yeah. for which Jefferson and and Washington and Adams and uh uh, Madison and the other founders, um, they did sacrifice for those ideas. They did believe very, very clearly in the separation of church and state, 
the That's right. power of secularism was incredibly strong uh, to these men. So I, I'm sure that Washington, Jefferson in, uh, in particular, and Madison in particular, would be spinning in their graves uh, at the notion of this white Christian nationalism that's come to fore uh, in this country uh, and come quite open. It's always been there, but mm -hmm. uh, social media and the mainstream media now and politicians uh, have given it uh, a new life and a new uh, acceptability that certainly in the past wasn't true. So that if someone uh, is uh, saying that they are for liberty and patriotism these days, and they are citing Adolf Hitler while they ban books, um, I, I don't think that that's what the, the founders had in mind. By the way, I on my website right now, don'tknowmuch.com, I have a series that just uh, every day I put up a, a post about the men who did yes. sign these this document, these 56 men, because they are fascinating. And, and the history is interesting when you see the real people. And these it's people true. have largely been obscured. Um, and I don't I take it very seriously when those men said that they pledged their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honors. Most of them did quite well through the revolution. Uh, they they did not have to sacrifice their lives in the most part or right. their uh, or their fortunes. Most of them came out of the other side of the war pretty well off. But um, but they were taking an enormous risk. And, and I as much as I want to say we have to be realistic and truthful about this, I do feel that there's a sense that these guys did accomplish something extraordinary. They were flawed. They were had egos. They had personalities. They had their own personal agendas and political agendas. And they certainly had um, egos in many respects, but um, but they did accomplish something extraordinary. And I think that when we all celebrate the 4th of July and we all now can celebrate uh, not the, uh, the the 4th of July that Frederick Douglass was talking about in 1852, but the 4th of July that includes the freedom that we celebrate on Juneteenth, Yes. I think it's it is the most American uh, of holidays, and I don't think it's been co-opted. And I take great heart uh, in these times from young people in this country who really seem to do to know their history. Uh, and it, contrary to the thought that they don't know history, I, I see these young people who are leading the the gun uh, safety issue, leading on the environmental issue, uh, being very very out, outspoken and forceful on what kind of country they want it to be. Uh, I think they've been very good students of American history, and I, I take a lot of um, of uh, heart in, in seeing that in a younger generation. I completely agree, and I'm glad we can end it on a, such a patriotic and optimistic note, because I share your hopes, Kenneth, that it will be the millennials and Gen Z who will fix everything for us. Always a great pleasure to have you. Kenneth C. Davis is the New York Times bestselling author of America's Hidden History and Don't Know Much About History and, of course, In the Shadow of Liberty. Mr. Davis, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your many doings? Well, don'tknowmuch.com is the website. And as I said, you can read the series about the 56 signers right now. And I'm on Twitter uh, still uh, at Kenneth C. Davis. And um, it's, uh, you know, we'll see where that goes. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still there, too. It's always a great pleasure, Mr. Davis. Thank you so much, and happy 4th of July to you. Thank you, John. It is always a pleasure to talk to you as well. And now, go pursue happiness. <laughs> I'm allowed to pursue it. I know that much. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. Have you ever been a victim of some kind of financial fraud or known someone close to you who has been? Do you ever wonder why Bernie Madoff knew he could so brazenly steal money from his clients? Do you ever wonder why it was so easy for Elizabeth Holmes to dupe all those investors? Have you ever gotten an email of some kind and been terrified to click on something for fear it was another scam? Look, fraud is everywhere from corporate giants to Ponzi schemers to embezzlers to the Nigerian princes that fill your inbox. Fraud costs us a lot of money as well. Every year, consumers and small businessmen and governments lose trillions of dollars to financial crime. But we are in an all-digital world now. We're pretty used to always hearing about people getting ripped off, and many of us assume being scammed or having your identity stolen is just something we're going to have to expect in a 21st century world. That's why I'm so thrilled to have Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope with us. She is the Dr. Barry J. Epstein Endowed Professor of Forensic Accounting at DePaul University in Chicago. She's a nationally recognized expert in risk, forensic accounting, and white-collar crime research, and an award-winning educator and filmmaker. Her book is Fool Me Once, Scams, Stories, and Secrets from the Trillion-Dollar Fraud Industry. It is a gripping look at the people who are doing all the ripping off, the people who are getting ripped off, and the whistleblowers who are risking everything to call out the crime. It's a book that shows how the fraud ecosystem works, what makes intelligent people so gullible, and how sometimes we need to look at our own behaviors and what's guiding us in the hope of protecting ourselves and the companies or families we love. What a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Kelly Pope to SiriusXM. Hello. Hey, hey, thank you. What a great introduction. I don't think well, I need to say anything more. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you, because what a great book. I love what you do. It's a very important public service. I think what you've done is very moral. I think what you've done is very political. But I have to ask the obvious question. What was it professionally that first fascinated you about this area? Well, couple things, couple, a couple of experiences. Um, I think back to my grandmother who had a liquor store when I was growing up. So my grandmother, before we talk, said that people were entrepreneurs, my grandmother ran a liquor store in Indianapolis, mm -hmm. Indiana. And I remember um, 
I worked at this store when I would go to Indianapolis for the summers and didn't think anything of it. Didn't think how inappropriate it was because it was just my grandmother's store. And what I noticed early on was when when the ice cream truck would come or we wanted to go out, we'd say, Grandma, can we get some money? And she'd say, oh, sweetie, just get some money out of the cash register. It's fine. No internal controls. You know, it was just take, take, take. The the register was like just an open piggy bank to, to not right. only us grandkids, but to the employees. So over time, of course, the liquor store folded because those lack of internal controls really um, impacted that that business in a very negative way. So that was the first instance of just understanding um, how money works or doesn't work. And then when I was in high school, there was a neighbor who uh, went to federal prison for um, embezzlement. And, you know, this 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 neighbor of mine was a bank executive. So I, I started thinking like, wow, adults can really act bad sometimes. Like, why would someone <laughs> risk everything that they have to um, to, to and, and go to jail? And so when I went to graduate school, that's when I really started studying the ethical decision making of accounting students and accounting students were a proxy for accounting professionals. And so I started that was what my dissertation was around. It was around the Machiavellianism of um, decision making of accounting students. And so I remember I was doing a presentation at the SEC. So this is, I fast forward another 10 years. And <laughs> okay. I was in D.C. doing a presentation at the SEC. And I was in the room early and people were coming into the room. And uh, this man walks in. And he says, I can't wait to hear about those felons. And it's I never forgot that comment because <laughs> I sort of think about any one of us could commit a crime. And so many of us do commit crimes and everybody is not the Bernard Madoffs of the world. Everyone is not out to steal money and they have a personal benefit. Some people feel like they are following the boss's orders and find themselves ensued in a crime. Other people are such superstars in their company and they bend the rules to help another person outside of their company. So again, there's these different profiles and any one of us could be one of them. So um, I think I had this journey where I wanted to change the narrative of it's not them, it's us. So um, I tried to really think about a way to make fraud accessible to everybody so they could see themselves in some of these stories. So that's sort of where it started and sort of my why as to um, why I did it and, and why I did it in the way that I did it. What's funny is a lot of times when people talk to me or they'll read my background, they'll say, "Ooh, you're an accountant. You're a CPA. You must be boring. And I'm like, no, I'm like the exact opposite <laughs> of that. Like, it's, I'm really not boring. And I'm really trying to make this subject educational and mm-hmm. entertaining at the same time. So I hope that you feel that when you read and experience oh, the book. Absolutely. After this book, you're you're the person at the party everybody should want to talk to because <laughs> You're right. One of my biggest takeaways from your work is that, yes, there are the obvious titanic cases of Enron level fraud. But in reality, so many of us engage in these little tiny micro frauds, little tiny micro scamming activities every day. And the biggest takeaway I got from the book 
was that in the fraud multiverse, they're they're not all created equal. Yes, you've got your scheming evil sociopaths who are just out there trying to hurt someone. But but you point out there are many people just like you and me, innocent, nice, no malice in their hearts who kind of either are asked to do something by a superior at work or stumble across a really kind of innocent opportunity to do the wrong thing and get away Absolutely. with it just this one time. Absolutely. You, you know, you think about the um, the two other uh, categories. So if you, when you're reading the book, the first half, the first third is about perpetrators. And yeah. so intentional perpetrators, everybody, we, we know them already because we watch documentaries and docu-series and true crime podcasts. We, we know them. But when you hear the stories of the accidental perpetrator, the CPA whose CFO said, just sign here. I'll explain it to you later. Trust me, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And you do it. And because you trust your senior leadership and that could lead you down the fraud path. Mm. Or the other person is the superstar. And so we tend to know what happens to superstars in organizations. You know, they have the halo around them. Mm -hmm. And so they can do no wrong. And whatever they want, they get. No one pushes back because we need them. They may have the star client. They may be the star sales leader. Whatever they are, they're a star. And that person sometimes thinks that the laws don't necessarily apply to them. And they, too, can do something that allows them to put them down that fraud path. So I wanted people to be able to see themselves in one of th- of those three categories. I knew they would never see themselves in the intentional perpetrator category, but these other two, you mm-hmm. can see yourself there. You can see how it happens. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a slippery slope, but let, let, let's let's start with the the really evil ones first because I I'm curious about, you know, the people you're talking about, these really successful CEOs or salespeople who just seem to acquire a certain level of privilege and acclaim that they feel entitled to break the law uh, because that's how things are done. How do the most egregious criminals get away with fraud out in the open year after year? You know, it's interesting. And this is this is um, it's a it's a I'm not a psychologist. I'm a couch potato psychologist. OK, right. so I'll say that <laughs> I believe that we secretly want power, money and success the fastest, quickest way we can get it. And so whether that is because of social media, because of celebrity uh, worship, how we do a lot now, whatever the reason is, we tend to want that life. And when we meet somebody, whether that be uh, a manager, senior director, CEO, that sounds like they could get us there faster. Right. We tend to relax all of the internal controls that we know are innately with us. And so I think that that is what allows us to be gullible and victimized. And, um, you know, I wonder if, if fraud would have been as prevalent if we didn't have social media, because you think Mm. about what social media allows us to do right now is it allows us to see the lives of very wealthy people that may live very differently from you. I can go on Instagram right now. And if I wanted to find 
what Jennifer Lopez wore last week. I can find out what she wore, how much her jewelry was, where she went, where she ate. And that gets into me to make me feel like, huh, well, I want it. How can I get it? Right. How can I get it faster? Because I I don't have enough money to get what she probably has. But if there's a, an advisor that has a plan that could maybe get me there faster, maybe I could get what Jennifer Lopez has. You know, so mm. I think there's a, a really complex, vicious cycle that sure. we are this journey we're all on that allows us to either engage in a scheme that allows us to get it quicker or be victimized by a scheme that allows us to get it quicker, one or the other, but it's still I, sort of I, one of the same. I'm with you. I mean, co coveting thy neighbor's goods is the backbone of this economy. And so much of what you point out in the book is that it, it has to do with perceptions. Like a Bernie Madoff was just perceived to be this financial wizard who had so many celebrity clients who trusted him. So why shouldn't I? But it also really seems like even though he was bringing in so much money, it should have raised a few eyebrows. A lot of these fraudsters surround themselves with coworkers who appreciate the largesse. Enough people profit off of the schemes that there's an infrastructure in place, isn't there? Very often where yeah. it's in the interest of coworkers to play dumb. Yeah. You know, you when you think about Madoff, um, what's so fascinating to me about Madoff is, like you just said, the persona, the perception that he created. So you have such high power clients that no one can ask you a question because if you do, you're cut off. So you you're you're untouchable now. And like just think about how dangerous it is. Let, let's put this in a different in a different um, industry. What if your loved one, let's say it's your great grandmother was having open heart surgery and you couldn't mm -hmm. ask the doctor a question. How crazy does that sound where you could not ask a doctor about the procedure that that they're about to perform on your family member? Now, but when it comes to money, you know, we look at things very differently when it's just a trade straight financial transaction. But when we put it in a different industry, that sounds ludicrous that you would not be able to ask your doctor a question. And if you do, he's going to cancel you as a patient. But that's who Madoff was. You that's know, right. he built his status so high. Everybody wanted to be in the room with him. Everybody wanted to be an investor with him. But you better not ask him a question or you'll get cut off. You know, mm. it's almost <laughs> the perfect. It's the perfect cover. If you really think about it, the perfect cover. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. And welcome back. I'm Dr. Pope. So much of this was just when the governing authorities facilitate fraud, which is something we've gotten kind of numb to, but it's it's really happening. And I'm thinking about right before the pandemic. And of course, just bringing up the pandemic, we think about, oh, the local bagel shop committed PPP fraud. How did that happen? There was so much epidemic of fraud. But, you know, it's it was 2019, right before coronavirus hit us that the Securities and Exchange Commission gutted Sarbanes-Oxley, which was Ron Paul's wet dream for so many years. Can you explain to our <laughs> listeners a bit about when they relaxed, a polite term of putting it, the, when they relaxed Sarbanes-Oxley, how that enabled so much more fraud to happen sure. almost seemingly legally? Yeah. So when, when Sarbanes-Oxley was relaxed, what it really did was relax the the amount of rigor that 
auditors, potential investors, pe- people that had a fiduciary responsibility to others, it relaxed the requirements um, of of really sound internal controls. And so that's never a good a good thing. So think about this. What if the um, National Transportation Board relaxed and said, "You, there's no more speed limits, and, and no one ever needs to wear a seatbelt anymore." Mm. What if you know? And so you can sort of envision, oh my goodness, how dangerous would that be to be driving down the highway without a speed limit and no requirement to wear a seatbelt? That's really what the relaxation yeah. of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act did in a financial in a financial world. So it was like the wild. It became more of the wild, wild west of um, financial transactions. So the oversight and the due diligence was a lot more um, relaxed. And so yeah. that's dangerous for the um, investing public. It's it's it really was. Um, a public disservice, if you really think about it. But for whatever reason, um, we know the, there are tons of reasons. We did it. And so um, here we are. Now, when here you think are. about what happened during the pandemic, and I think the federal government's desire and compassion to want to put the money in the hands of business owners was, was, was pure. Sure. But I think in response to that, relaxing some of the traditional requirements that you would need to get to qualify for, for example, an SBA loan. I mean, it's pretty rigorous. If you've ever even looked at an SBA loan application, you're pretty much giving them your your, your kid. You know, you're telling yeah. them every piece of information that you ever have to prove who you are. So when you relax those type of requirements, it became just a money free for all. And so mm-hmm. what I found fascinating um, with all the PPP loan fraud was not that it happened, but who was doing it. So now you have law abiding entrepreneurs, nurses, right. chiropractors, doctors really mm-hmm. willing to push the envelope and say, huh, instead of saying I have four employees, I'm going to say I have 40 employees. Instead That's of it. saying I have uh, $300,000 in annual revenue, I'm going to say I have 15 million in annual revenue. And so there's no checks and balances anymore. So I'm going to I'm going to try it out. And so you seeing law abiding citizens engage in this type of fraud is very scary. It's very scary. Because, again, it's like you say, ordinary people who aren't looking to hurt anyone, but realizing these laws were just relaxed. Suddenly there's a plague and everyone's at home and, and, and people's heads are on fire. You know what? I probably and the government's won't giving get out caught. money. The gov- government's giving yeah, out the money. Government's giving out money. There's big businesses that are going to do big scams. I'm a small business. The chances of getting caught are so low. And if I get caught, I can just say I made a mistake with the application, and and it's probably worth the risk. And that's really how a lot of nice people wound up being part of COVID fraud. Right and right, and they are going to jail now. Like these 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 cases, you see them. You know, one of the things I jokingly, I remember my grandmother say, one of the things you never want to do, never, ever steal from the federal government. That's the one thing. That's the one place you never want to steal from because you will. (laughs) Hang on. Let me write this down. Hang on. Or I'll remember that. Okay. (laughs) If you're going to steal, steal from a company. I'm joking, joking, completely joking. (laughs) Hang on. I'll write that down, too. (laughs) Don't write that part down. But, you know, it's, it's interesting when you see, though, that just just the everyday person, your colleague. Um, 
engaging in fraud. And you know, I've had colleagues and I have this story in the book. One of my colleagues, uh, Bob Lattice, was engaged in a multi-million dollar real estate fraud, you know, and, you know, I'm in my office now. We shared a wall. So most of my conversations he could hear because the walls are thin. And little did I know that he was engaged in um, a, a pretty significant uh, mortgage fraud. And went to federal prison, you know, so my colleague, my DePaul colleague. So this idea that there are these organized crime units, not to say that they don't exist. They're still there. But now it's us. It's everybody that's willing to push the envelope. And so that's what I really wanted to open people's eyes up a little bit bigger that I'm actually talking about you or your friend. <laughs> I <That's> could right. <laughs> be. And I want you to know that. So then I, I'm wondering, what do you think is the role of government or what should be the role of government in terms of preventing fraud, not just chasing them down, but preventing yeah. these kind of uh, ethical lapses? You know, I think the role that government can play, and when you look at the fraud research and it tells us that Most frauds are discovered by whistleblowers. I really, really think the role that government can play is finding a way to support whistleblowing in a a kind, nurturing, supportive way, because it's a very long journey. And so I think that to to the extent that the government can help, it it needs to help there because the fraudsters are going to be the fraudsters. You know, it's going to that's going to keep going. But there are lots of witnesses of all of these fraud stories. You know, when I, I do my interviews with the whistleblowers and uh, we're talking about a fraud that might occurred in their organization, they'll say things like, yeah, I knew this was going on. I tried to tell someone no one would ever listen. But yeah, I, I saw this and this and this and this, but who no one cared. So yep. I think that creating an outlet for people like that Uh, that have something to say and really trying to figure out a way to support them because many of the whistleblowers don't have the financial means to retain counsel. And so to the extent that we can really support whistleblowers, I think we really need to in a different, more proactive way than we are. And I think that's where the government can help. You you gave a TED Talk, of course, uh, How Whistleblowers Shape History, and it's been translated into 20 languages. It's been viewed close to two million times. I'm curious, what do you think the public at large gets wrong about whistleblowers? Sure, that's a great question, John. I think the public gets wrong that whistleblowers are troublemakers. I think I really think the public is um, fearful of a person that steps out and is more courageous than most. I think that makes us a little bit um, uncomfortable, you yes. know, and and so I think that the public truly gets wrong that this person is a troublemaker and they're a problem. You know, even when you think about the pandemic, I mean, there was a whistleblower that noticed, hey, something's wrong in this lab, you know, and tried to whistleblow on that. So I think we have to support these people that, in my view, are fearless. You know, I think when all the the work I've done, you know, the the on-camera interviews with the white-collar felons, they're always fascinating. But it's the interviews with the whistleblowers that really sort of get to me because I don't know that I could do or would do what they've done. I know I wouldn't do what the white-collar offenders have done, but I don't know that I would risk it all 
to expose something right. because it's tough. Like a Jeffrey Wigand, Russ, Russell Crowe. Yeah. 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 You know, so it, I, I think to the extent that we can figure out a way to help them and change the misconception that they are this disgruntled troublemaker employee and they just need to mind their own business and sit down and they're a nuisance. That's what we have to change. Well, I, I find your conversations with the fraudsters fascinating as well, because you talk to the big ones, the malicious ones, the sociopaths, and you talk to the ordinary people who tried to cut a corner and then couldn't get out. And I'm curious, is there a lot of overlap in terms of them understanding why they got caught, why they had the risk reward ratio wrong? Or is it a lot of people who don't actually repent, just repent that they got caught? I think um, the most confused out of the three categories are the accidental whistleblowers um, because they don't really understand or see their role in it because they are just following the orders, the marching orders of somebody else's vision. They didn't right. receive a bonus. They didn't receive any huge payout. They're just doing their job. And now I'm being questioned by the SEC or the FBI for the actions of another person. I think they're the ones that are the, that feel the most manipulated mm. intentional perpetrators and righteous perpetrators. They're similar. I think in their, um, in their remorse, it happened. I did it. It was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm trying to right my wrong. They're a little bit more, um, more direct with right. their, with, with what happened to them. It's the accidentals that are like, I'm just an accountant. I'm just a lawyer. I'm just a, you fill in the blank. I didn't get anything from this. My boss asked me to do it. I wanted to get um, a, a good rating. I wanted to keep my job. I'm the breadwinner from my family. I had to do what they asked me to do. They're the ones that sort of get caught in the crosshairs in a way that um, I'm not a therapist, but when I'm doing those interviews, I sort of feel like I'm a therapist because I feel so bad because at the end of the day, the outcomes are the same. So you're still going to jail. You're still a convicted felon for the rest of your life. And you still have to put together your pieces just like you would an, in an intentional perpetrator. I just hope that I can bring more empathy to that accidental perpetrator so that perhaps they can get their life back on a different path because somebody will help them. You really have. But when I first was reading your book notes saying how you had discovered empathy for perpetrators, I thought, well, even I, <laughs> even I'm not that open hearted and liberal. I'd love to be. But going through the course of the book, yeah, we all recognize the slippery slope and how sometimes for even the purest of intentions, people can wind up cutting a corner. And, and, yeah. and next thing you know, you're in jail. Um, I, I got to ask you about one more thing, because the FBI sure. told us that cyber criminals stole almost two billion from senior Americans in 2020. Yeah. And I'm curious, why is it that our elderly loved ones are the group seemingly most frequently targeted? Are they, Seniors, do they just have the most income lying around or are they especially yeah. vulnerable in the tech age? Yeah. Seniors, senior citizens have definitely have a target on their back for a couple of reasons. Um, they tend to be more trusting. They don't always have some, um, like a, a trustee overseeing their finances and they right. tend to have more money. You think about it. They don't have any dependents. If they, if they manage their money well, 
then if you're in your senior years, you're sitting on top of a significant amount of money that you are just spending down because you don't have any dependents anymore. Your house hopefully is paid for if you didn't take a second mortgage out for another kid to help them buy a house. But you know what I'm saying? They they tend to be a target because they are a source of money and they tend to be trusting and they doubt themselves more. I think about when my grandmother was living, my grandmother got to a point where she didn't trust herself as much as she used to. So if somebody picked up the phone and called her and said, Hey, I'm your long lost cousin from um, Ohio. Uh, You don't remember me, but we met when I was a little baby and my mom always told me about you. Listen, I'm in a tough situation. Could you send me (laughs) $10,000? My grandmother is trusting herself that I probably did meet her. I probably don't remember. And I do have $10,000. Sure, baby, I can send that to you right now. That's a senior citizen. So fraudsters know that. And that's why they become victimized so much easier than, say, somebody that's a a Gen Z or a millennial. Right, right. I mean, you give so many valuable tips in this book, but just... Respect the red flags is probably the one that stayed with me the most because they're always there. I need a shirt that says that. Respect the red flags. (laughs) I loved the book. And honestly, I'm so glad you wrote it. I think you've given a great public service. The book, once again, is Fool Me Once, Scams, Stories and Secrets from the Trillion Dollar Fraud Industry. Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope is the author. I recommend this book so highly and it makes an amazing gift as well. Uh, Dr. Pope, you're always welcome back here anytime to talk about this even further. But what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work and all your doings? Sure, thanks. I um, have a website, kellyrichmanpope.com, that I try to update when I can. Um, but I'm still on, like, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Instagram, so I post a lot on Instagram. And um, my kids are trying to get, push me over to TikTok just a little bit. I think I'm, I'm kicking and screaming a little bit there. But, yeah, LinkedIn's the best way. Um, and uh, my website, kellyrichmanpope.com. Brilliant. The book, once again, is Fool Me Once. Thank you so much for joining us on SiriusXM. I love your book. Thank you so much for having me.